Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. Whether you're listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. Brothers and sisters, big weekend next weekend, big weekend this weekend. Take, it was like Dr. Seuss. Take, if you would, take a Bible. We're going to the book of Matthew. Now, we, um, we don't do a lot of fancy stuff. We just kind of are going through the book of Matthew from Christmas to Easter. And, sir, this is the good part. There is no reason to leave. <clears throat> now, for those of you that are a bit younger, this is not the good part for you. This is the part where some old dude talks for half an hour. If you're lucky, it's half an hour. Um, sure, let's all leave right now. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go to Matthew 5. We're in a series on the book of Matthew. Now, my assumption is, because I'm not going to take time recapping the book of Matthew every time, is that you're tracking along. If you can't be here, you're podcasting or downloading the messages because lo and behold, the book of Matthew, oh, you're grabbing a Bible. Oh, godliness, godliness. Now, is that a legitimate reason to get up? Whatever he was doing, is that legit? No way, no way. Now, I'm assuming you're tracking along because, shockingly, um, the Bible actually makes sense. It fits together. The book of Matthew is going somewhere, and it builds on each other. And so I'm not going to take time to recap. Uh, I'm just assuming you're tracking with us. So last week, we talked about the Beatitudes, Jesus' pronouncement of blessing on people that it was thought weren't part of the kingdom movement that Jesus was bringing about. He looks at these same people in verse 13 of chapter 5. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. The image of salt uh, in the first century, huge image. Uh, it, was, it added flavor, of course, but it also um, arrested decay. So literally, you didn't have refrigerators. If you wanted to keep meat, you would uh, fill it full of salt, and it would keep it from decaying. Salt also from the Dead Sea had medicinal value. So this is a great image for what Jesus desires of his followers, that there's this sense that they are so engaged and so intermixed with the world that they bring flavor and goodness and they bring about God's glory and his truth. And, and so and, and we, have, we have examples of ovens. Archaeologically, we have, we have examples of ovens that were lined with these big salt blocks. So you would bake in these ovens with these salt blocks and after about... 15 years or so, the salt blocks would become useless and they'd just be thrown out. So there was a sense that salt could be unsalty, unsalty. And so Jesus is just saying, listen, if you're going to be true to who you are, you'll recognize I've put you in the world to add flavor, prevent decay, so on. Second uh, metaphor he gives is in verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city that's up on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now, later, Jesus will condemn people who do good deeds publicly for their own glory. Here, Jesus says it's okay to do good deeds publicly if it, if it brings glory and honor to the Father. Now, these two images of salt and of light 
have a huge epic backstory. For most of us, you hear this, and it's kind of like a nice, you know, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. That'd make a great song. And, and you know, there's this kind of, this kind of uh, you know, it's like a Sunday school lesson sort of feel to a passage like this. But what Jesus is doing is so incredibly profound and has radical implications for us that what I want to do is I want to go from here and I want to blow this passage up to to give it a Bible's eye view. I want to look at 17 different passages. I know, it's ridiculous. And don't say to me, that's too much Bible. Can you ever have too much Bible? You can, but not in this instance, okay? So what I want to do is I want to use this to launch us into this kind of big conversation, um, and then we'll come back to this, and, and hopefully it'll, it'll, it'll feel a little different when we read it again. So, go to Genesis chapter 12. Now, if you don't have a Bible, or if I lose you along the way because I've got a hustle, we'll put everything up on the screen for you. Genesis chapter 12. We are here often, wouldn't you agree? Too often, perhaps? That's the right answer. We could not get enough of Genesis chapter 12. And the reason is, Genesis 1 and 2 give us this image of a good God who creates the world, nestles the first humans in this garden called Eden. He gives them work to do, and he declares the whole thing to be very good. Genesis 3 through Genesis 11, things go south pretty quickly. Sin and death entered the world, and literally, you just see the effects of it rippling out into every part of human relationship, every human dynamic, every structure of human society, even the fabric of creation itself is affected by sin and death. And so at the end of chapter 11, we're left with, well, what's God going to do in response to all of this? Like, it's kind of like, okay, he's going to do something. He's not just creator. He's also redeemer. What's he going to do? And then we come to Genesis 12. Verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. Okay, we don't know anything about Abram. He was just mentioned in a genealogy a few verses back, and it's kind of like, okay, so this is God's big answer to human evil. Seems a little anticlimactic. I don't know about you. You know, if you're new to church, there are actually churches where the people like the person who's talking. I don't know what those are like. And then there's this epic promise given to Abram. God says, I will make you into a great nation, which, irony of ironies, was going to be a bit tough because Abraham is old, his wife is old, his wife was barren. So the promise is, I'm going to turn your line of descendants into a nation, and he says elsewhere, that will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. Your name will be great, and you will be a blessing. In other words, my blessing of you isn't to stop with you. It's so that you can be a blessing also. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So this is God's move to counter the entrance of sin and death. I will form a community of people that will be a blessing to the rest of the world. That's God's big answer to the problem of evil and suffering. Go, if you would, to the book of Exodus. So God says to this man, 
I will make you into a a nation. And and that he does. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel becomes this nation, but they find themselves enslaved in Egypt. Charlton Heston delivers them. It is powerful. God takes them to this mountain where he now gives them their job description. And you have to understand, the Old Testament isn't a book of law and the New Testament's a book of grace. The whole thing's grace. God is now going to tell the people he's already redeemed what their job description is now as his redeemed people. This isn't, hey guys, now you gotta keep all these rules. It is rather, hey, because I've rescued you, I now want to put you on display so that everybody else can see what it's like to live with me. So Exodus 19, verse 4. We there? And for those of you trying to keep up on your little iPods and iPads, good luck. God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me, what? A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, priests would have been very familiar to Israel, even though at this stage in their development, the priesthood wasn't fully uh, actualized, but everybody knew priests were intermediaries. Priests received offerings on behalf of the gods. Priests pronounced blessings on behalf of the gods. Priests stood before God or gods and the people. Priest, uh, the priest was a very crucial image in the ancient Near East. And here's the idea. God looks at these people and he says, you've seen how I've rescued you. Now your job description is to be a kingdom full of priests, to literally be my intermediaries to the rest of the earth. You will be wholly set apart for me, and the goal will be that you will stand before the people and me, and you will literally be my representatives all throughout the earth. I mean, that is an incredible image. So how does God counteract the entrance of sin and death? He says, I will form around me a community of people that I will put on display so the nations can see them. Are you with me? strong. And you're looking more buff this week. Now, if you remember him from last week, his praise, it was like, hey, what's God doing? He's like, well, I'm looking more buff. That was what God has been doing in his life. And I was like, well, he's not doing that for me. So I don't know whether to celebrate that or not. Go if you would, I'm just teasing, go if you would to Deuteronomy chapter 7. So what God does is he gathers around himself a community of people that he's going to put on display. But he's very clear that he's not putting them on display because they're awesome. Rather, it's because he's awesome. So Deuteronomy 7, we're now in the hinterlands of the Old Testament. Verse 7, Moses says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were the most numerous of other peoples, but you were actually the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. And that he kept his promise to your forefathers that he chose you. In other words, could Israel get cocky? Sure, we're God's chosen people, right? We're like this kingdom of priests. And so all throughout the Old Testament, God keeps saying, hey, just so we're clear, it wasn't because you were awesome 
that you're my chosen people, right? I could have actually picked like a more religious tribe or a more numerous tribe, but I picked you because I wanted to put my greatness on display. So God forms a people, puts them on display, reminds them that it's not because they're glorious that they're on display, but instead, go if you would to Isaiah chapter 42. We're going to do three Isaiah passages very, very quickly. And then we're going to go to Matthew. So let's go to Isaiah 42 real quick. So the image, the metaphor that God uses to describe the role of his people in the world. Go, uh, go to verse 6. Isaiah 42, page 398 in the brown fake leather Bible. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a what? A light to the Gentiles. Now, the Jews divided the world into two groups. Jewish folks and non-Jewish folks. The non-Jewish folks were called Gentiles. So, the goal of this group of people was to be a light to the world. Hmm, it sounds like a phrase we read just a few moments ago. Flip over, if you would, to chapter 49, real quick. Verse 6. God says, Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, to bring those of Israel I have kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. And what's that mean? That you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Go to chapter 60. What do you think this one's going to say? Something about light, perhaps? I just want you to know I'm not making this stuff up. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of dawn. So, God moves to counter the effects of sin and death by gathering a community out of human history and giving them a job description that says, I will put you on display. And it's not because they're awesome, right? Because he could have picked other nations. But their job was to literally be a light to the world. The metaphor is of, of, a, of a source of light around a great darkness and that people would be attracted to the light out of the darkness. And so literally, that was the job description of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. So when Jesus looks at his little ragtag band of followers and says, you are the light of the world, he's taken the job description of Israel as a whole and placed it now on the shoulders of his followers. See, this isn't just some cute metaphor that he pulls out of nowhere. Salt, by the way, has its own backstory too. We don't have time, thankfully, to look at salt. But I want you to feel the weight of when he looks at this community and says, you are the light of the world, you have to understand this is totally consistent with what God does the whole time. Right? He calls Abraham, forms him into a nation, puts him on display, says you're the light of the world. What's Jesus do? He gathers around himself a community. Right? Go to Matthew 4. Just because we can. Now, if you're wondering why this matters, if you continue to listen, you will lose 10 pounds. <laughs> I promise. Money back guarantee. Matthew chapter 4. 
Verse 18, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, and I will make you what? Fishers of men. So it's totally consistent that the first thing Jesus of Nazareth would do is gather around himself a community and then tell that community that they are the light of the world. This is what God does. The Holy Spirit does the same thing at Pentecost in in the book of Acts, and the church is born. God gathers a community, puts them on display that they literally would be salt and light in the world, and, and as Isaiah says, and bring salvation to those that don't know God. That's what he does. So you have all of these epic commissions given to the disciples that that totally fit out of this. Go to the end of Matthew. You guys know this one, I'm sure. Matthew 28. Verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, be salt and light. Be the light to the world. I mean, the job description given to Israel is the job description as it turns out given to us. Go, if you would, to the book of uh, Acts, chapter 1. From Acts, we're going to 1 Peter. And then from 1 Peter back to Matthew. And then from Matthew to Mark. And then from Mark to Luke. That's right. That's right. Are you tired? And where's 1 Peter? Right before? Totally. That never gets old. That never gets old. What did I say? I said Acts. I'm jumping the gun. i got to go back. Acts chapter 1. Oh, here it is. Jesus speaking to his followers. Verse 8. You will receive the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is all kingdom of priest stuff. Go to 1 Peter. I just want you to see this all throughout the New Testament. That's why we do this. I want, I want you to see how the whole thing fits together. God doesn't change uh, over the course of centuries, and the job description given to God's people doesn't change throughout the centuries. So 1 Peter, notice this language. Verse 9, uh, chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen people. A royal priesthood. That sounds like Exodus. A holy nation taken from Exodus. You are a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you'd received mercy, now no, once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And then, and then Peter goes on, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Does that not sound like Matthew chapter 5, which sounds like Isaiah, which sounds like Exodus, which really is fulfillment of Genesis 12? The whole thread of the Bible is this. God calls out of human history people for himself. And their job description is to be put on display for the world's sake. 
And various images are used. A priesthood, a holy nation, salt, light. But the underlying thread is the same. For whatever reason, God has decided to build a community for himself and they're his ambassadors and representatives. Now, that's point number one. All right? You got point number one? Yes. We have four points and they're all of equal length. Now, just kidding. There's only one more point. Now, go back to the book of Matthew. Point number one is that he calls a community and puts them on display. Point number two is that he uses spiritual... I have to watch my language. Spiritual zeros. The spiritually clueless. The spiritually dumb. He uses people... Well, you'll see. The good news is that the people he chooses to make salt and light turn out to be a lot like us. Go to Matthew chapter 8. I'm going to cherry pick some verses from the Gospels where Jesus rebukes his followers. These are the same people that he's calling salt and light, and it should give us hope. Verse 26, Matthew 8. Jesus replies to his followers, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Anybody have little faith in here? Anybody ever been afraid? Welcome to the club. Go, if you would, uh, to Matthew 15, real quick. We'll go to, yeah, Matthew 15, verse 16. I love this one. Jesus said to them, Are you still so dull? Anyone a little slow on the uptake sometimes? Go to chapter 16. So Peter has just said, Jesus says, who do people say I am? Ah, you're a prophet or something. Well, what do you guys think? Disciples? Peter says, oh, you're the Messiah. Jesus says, absolutely. But I actually have to die and suffer. Peter decides to confront the Messiah on the wrongheadedness of that mission. And Jesus very gently instructs him. Verse 23, Jesus then turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Anybody ever think they were doing something for Jesus when in actuality you, you were actually working against him? Anybody ever miss on the priorities that Jesus had versus the priorities that I have? Welcome to the club. Go, if you would, uh, to the book of Mark, chapter 9. Just real quick, or you don't have to go. I'll just go. My fingers are warmed up. So Jesus is walking down the road and he's explaining to his disciples that he has to suffer and die. It's kind of a big deal that he's explaining this. When they reached their destination, they came to Capernaum, verse 33, Mark 9. They came to Capernaum. When Jesus was in the house, he asked them, hey, what were you guys arguing about while I was pouring my heart out to you, telling you I was about to suffer? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Anybody have an ego? Anybody a bit narcissistic? Anybody, anybody follow Jesus for what they get out of it? Right? Welcome to the club. Go to Luke chapter 8. Or I'll go to Luke chapter 8. So Jesus was supported by wealthy women. 
I'm still waiting. I married a teacher, which so I'm still waiting for the uh, wealthy woman part. Oh, come on. Ladies, some of you are out there and you are making money. I'm just saying, one role biblically. Just... So Luke is giving us just a snapshot of, of the women. After this, Jesus traveled about from one ten and village to another. Chapter 8, verse 1. The twelve were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Now how would you, you get a shout out in the Gospel of Luke and he has to add that on. So like, so, because there are many Marys throughout the gospel. So are you the one that had seven demons cast out? Or are you, right? I mean, how, how many of you have a past? Oh, no one's raising their hand on that one. It's like, yeah, okay, I'm a narcissist. Sure, look at me, I'm raising my hand. But anyone got a past? You know, it's the, it's the T-Rex kind of arm race at that point. I mean, so the light of the world includes... Someone who had seven demons cast out. Somebody that he is called Satan because he so misunderstood the mission of Jesus. A group that is dull. A group that has little faith and is afraid. Go to the book of Acts. Last passage for today. And the church said, Amen. Yes. <laughs> Acts chapter 4. So two guys named Peter and John. We're testifying to the greatness of Jesus. And they get into trouble. They get flogged and they're imprisoned and all this stuff. But here's what everyone had to say about them. Chapter 4, verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. Anybody unschooled and ordinary? Welcome to the club. Jesus gathers around himself a community, just like God before him. Genesis 12, Abram, I'm going to make you into a community, a nation. And through that nation will come blessing to the whole world. Your job description is to be a kingdom of priests, to literally be my intermediaries to the world. The image that was used is that of light. You're the light of the world. And just so we're clear, it's not because you're so awesome that you've been granted this. It's just because I love you. And I like to use weak things to shame strong things. I like empty vessels that I fill with treasure so nobody thinks it was them. So then Jesus of Nazareth shows up and he does the exact same thing. Do you see this? He gathers around a community of people and to them he says, you are the light of the world. The same job description Israel had, you have. But who are the people he chooses? The dull? The slow? Those that have passed? The ordinary? The unschooled? And what does this community of screw-ups do? Change the world. No money, no power, no status. 
And in 300 years, the Roman Empire will be Christianized. So, here we sit, 2,000 years later, as people who are a bit slow to get it, as people who sometimes mistakenly oppose the work of Jesus when we think we're helping him out, as people who are a bit dull, as people that are afraid and have little faith, as people that have pasts that we would be embarrassed to share. And the invitation is the same. You are light. You are salt. You carry the name of Jesus wherever you find yourself. Now, this has really profound implications. For some of us, we've been hurt by the church. For some of us, we've experienced the humanness of the church in really negative ways. We felt judged, excluded. We felt insulted. We felt, I mean, all sorts of things. And I want you to know, I mean, personally, I'm sorry that you've seen that. But I also want you to see that the reason God chooses imperfect people to do this is to show off how great he is, not how great they are. And there are some of us who just think, hey, me and Jesus, that's all we do. I just did me and Jesus and I don't need anybody else. No, 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 no. God pulls a community together because it's the community that is salt and light, not just individual specks of salt or light. But if you're like me, I just need to be reminded that being ordinary, being unschooled, being a little slow, not always having it together, the revolution's for us. I mean, if you're here and you're a screw-up, welcome to the revolution. If you're here and you don't get it, welcome to the revolution. If you're here and you don't have faith, welcome to the revolution. If you're here and you have a resume of sin, Welcome to the resolution. Welcome, it's New Year's. Welcome to the revolution. This turns out to be great news. This isn't guilt, this isn't shame. God redeems imperfect people and says, all you gotta do is be faithful. Not looking for perfection. And you are salt. Some of us need to just be woken up that literally where you go after this And the ordinary life you have, your friends, your family, your problems, your job, your studies, your classmates, the person you're dating, your spouse, your family, that is the place you're called to be salt and light. It's not just somewhere like overseas. So because I have, because I have a modeling career and because I have, um, been up front at a couple of large churches in the area, I happen to get recognized uh, whenever I go out. And, and, it, and it took my wife and I just kind of a, use, a while to get used to this. One time I was barfing in Hogue Hospital's emergency room. It was 4.54 in the morning, hungry like the wolf was playing. I kid you not, I remember it. I am, and I'm not a very quiet vomiter. And so I'm howling and, you know, screaming. I don't know what I was doing. So it probably sounded like an exorcism was happening over in, you know, bed three. And within maybe 15 minutes of each other, here comes a paramedic. Hi, Pastor Mike. Here comes, um, here comes a candy striper. 
here comes a scribe. I thought I saw your name on the, and I'm, I mean, I'm, you know, I got, I'm green and I got the gown on, so there's half of me, it's uncovered, and I'm just laying there, you know, I mean, really? Bless you. You know, what do you do? I mean, just, Okay. And, I can't, and every time someone calls me, I don't even know who Pastor Mike is. I answered a mic, by the way. I don't know who this Pastor Mike is. But I've learned that I am on display. I was at Disneyland in Ariel's Grotto. <laughs> Mistake number one. My little girl was turning three. She loves princesses, so we're going to go to Ariel's Grotto. Now, Ariel's Grotto, kids, plug your ears, is horrible. It's like $35 hot dog, so you can have a princess come around, take a picture, and leave. You can get that for free out in the park. So I, here I am. We're paying like 100 bucks for hot dogs. And I don't have wealthy women supporting me, right? I got a teacher. And so I'm, and I'm, getting, I'm getting frustrated because the service was horrible. I mean, this meal was taking an hour and a half to get hot dogs. Certain, the, it was, the wrong order came, and it was just ridiculous. And I was so irritated. And I just kept wanting to just be, like, irritated. <laughs> and our, our, little, our server comes about an hour and a half into this thing, hands me the check, says, Hi, Pastor Mike. Thought number one, why did you wait an hour and a half to tell me? <laughs> Thought number two, did I say anything horrible? <laughs> oh my goodness, right? So here's what I've learned. My wife and I have come to really enjoy the fact that people recognize us, not because we're all a big deal, but because we carry the name of Jesus wherever we go. And that is such a reminder to us. See, I had to give up the illusion of anonymity that I can be anonymous and be insulting and think that's cool. Right? You're online. Nobody recognizes your username. You can flame anybody and it doesn't matter. No, you carry the name of Jesus. Even if nobody knows, he knows. We don't have the opportunity or the right to get even. I mean, you carry the name of Christ. And so literally, this for me, this hasn't been like, oh, I feel so much pressured like, to live up to people's expectations. No. I'm this dude everywhere. Like it or not. But I do feel a life-bringing, joy-giving awareness that being salt and light means I carry his name. Now, that doesn't mean perfection. Hallelujah. Because I screwed that up when I first said yes to him. But it does mean, for those of us committed to the Jesus life, God doesn't just bless you for you. We are to be literal agents of redemption wherever we find ourselves. And sometimes that means talking. Sometimes that means serving. Sometimes that means being nice when you'd rather be rude. Sometimes that means forgiving when you'd rather keep score. Sometimes that means sitting at a lunch table with the person that nobody likes. 
Sometimes that means accepting the unacceptable. And this isn't a law thing. It's a grace thing. Because for me, one of the things that changed my Jesus life is the recognition that ordinary no longer applies. Carpool, neighborhood, sports teams, out to dinner, because we're priests, it all matters. And I love it. Because I have found myself in the most random situation saying, God, what are you up to? And God saying, you know, I'm up to something here. You want to be a part? And me saying, I'd actually like to be a part. And then him saying, well, yeah, but you got to do something risky. And me saying, well, no, I don't want to be a part then. Sorry. Go ahead. There's this, there's this way I think Jesus invites us to see our lives that's so different from modern Christian ways of seeing our lives. So we come to a church and already we're wrong. This isn't church. You are church. A community called out of human history to be put on display. That's church. We're in a theater. And in America, we think the ministers are the ones who were paid by the church or the, who do the stuff on the stage. And the whole building is shaped around up on the stageness. But I happen to be one minister in a whole room full of them. And we have missions boards where we track people that go overseas to be missionaries. And hallelujah for that. But the implication is that we're not. And that's incorrect. So men and women, the great news is that Jesus is looking for misfits and outcasts and screw-ups to be a part of his revolution. And that through people humble enough to say yes to him, he has and will continue to change the world. That's the invitation. So if you would, would you stand up, please? All the gray-chaired people said, amen. It's so comfortable down front. All right, close your eyes if you would. I just want to think about this for a few moments. Maybe you're here and you've been hurt by the church. Maybe you're here and you felt let down or you felt betrayed or you felt unfairly judged. Would you, in response to what we've heard this morning, consider letting go of those grudges, releasing that hurt, recognizing that the same imperfection that has hurt you is the imperfection that Jesus uses to show his glory? Because it's so not about us. Or maybe you're here and you're just kind of a lone ranger. And for you, the idea of committing to a community is a scary one. I want you to understand that is part of the invitation of Christ, to join a community to work all of this out because we can't do it alone. But for many of us, and I'm in this category, I just need to be woken up to the awareness that I carry the name of Jesus that God would wake us up to the burning bushes that are just all around us, to the places where he's working all around us, that I don't ever bring Jesus someplace. He's already there and I show up. 
And so would you guys just take a moment, wherever you find yourself, and engage with this. Ask God's forgiveness. Ask God's mercy. Ask God for courage or faith. What's it look like for you to live more deeply as salt and light in the world? Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariners Church Mission Viejo Campus. For more information about Mariners, visit www.marinerschurch.org.